Hello there, and a very warm welcome to Des's Island Discs. In a hectic world, this is a little oasis of calm and nostalgia from our guests who choose pieces of music that remind them of a particular time or story from their life or career. Now, if you're listening on podcast, we cannot play the music because of copyright laws. But really, this is about stories. So let's hear them. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. Now, today's guest is a Dubliner, a household figure in Ireland. He's been the face and voice of RTE News for many years. It's a pleasure to welcome Brian Dobson. And, and Brian, in, in calling you in, your first choice brings you back to your youth and you paint a kind of an idyllic picture here. I do, because I, I think I was very fortunate in having a wonderful childhood, thanks to two just absolutely wonderful parents, both of whom have, have passed away, but I think gave myself and my sister really uh, such a great start in life. Uh, they were supportive, they were encouraging, and I suppose the choice of music for this first piece is around an aspect of, of that uh, childhood and, and early adolescence, which, if you like, in, encapsulates that. Um, by way of background, my father and my uncle were both very in involved in, in cricket, in the sport of cricket. And I thought I'd start with the sporting story, Des, uh, <laughs> given your own interests. Um, and they were, they were both very active in our local club, was a club called YMCA. Um, and so I grew up very much in this cricket uh, ethos or environment, if you like. That was how summer Saturdays were spent, visiting cricket grounds all around Dublin, uh, following the team. My dad now had given up playing by the time I came along, uh, as had my uncle, but they were great supporters still of the club and were involved in it in various ways. And so to me, summers are endlessly, of course, warm and sunny as they are in your childhood <laughs> and endlessly filled with the sound of the bat and the ball in cricket grounds uh, really across the city of Dublin. Uh, you know, I play on the sideline with a few other kids and we'd uh, try to emulate the, the grown-ups uh, on the field of play. Now, I should say when I finally uh, got old enough to play myself, I was absolutely hopeless. <laughs> I mean, two, two left feet, no hand-eye ball bat coordination whatsoever. So I knocked a ball around a bit as a teenager but I really uh, decided that uh, it wasn't going to be for me. But I've still kept a connection. I'm still a sort of pavilion member, if you like, of uh, YMCA and I still like to do what I can in a small way to support them. So the, the first piece of music, if you like, to, uh, to pay tribute uh, to that um, uh, is a song called Jiggery Pokery. Uh, and it's by uh, uh, the Duckworth-Lewis Method. Now, cricket aficionados will know that the Duckworth-Lewis Method is an extremely fiendishly complicated formula for working out who's won a game when rain stops play or something comes yes. along that they can't complete the game. So uh, these songs are, are cricket-themed. Uh, it's an album by Neil Hannan. I think people might know, know him from the Divine Comedy, from uh, Fermanagh, uh, from Enniskillen, and uh, Thomas Walsh, who's uh, involved with a band called Pugwash. And they did this mm. wonderful... They did actually two cricket themed albums. Uh, this, is, this is the first of them. And this, this describes a, a famous moment in international cricket between England and Australia, when an English batsman, a very successful English batsman called Mike Gatting, was bowled out, first ball he'd faced by a young, uh, then unknown Australian bowler called Shane Warne. And Shane Warne was a, what was called a, um, a leg spinner. So he wasn't a fellow who hurtled the ball at great speed at a batsman to try and knock the bales uh, off the stumps, but he would spin the ball deviously and mischievously and it would be like trying to swat a fly where is it going and he managed uh, to uh, really deliver what was what's described these days as the ball of the century and he bowled uh, Mike Gatting out first ball in this Ashes Test uh, match in 1993 and this song is sung from the point of view of Mike Gatting mm -hmm. and what he expected when he went out and what actually happened Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1 Shane Warren of course was this uh 
impish character as well. He was a roguish type character and a bit. Cricket has had had its it had both of them as well. So. Cricket had its kind of... Uh, it's always, yes, it's always had those characters, hasn't yeah. it? I mean, it's a very interesting sport from the point of view. It's a team game, obviously, and team sports have that particular characteristic of obviously you're, you're working for the collective good. But it also depends, I think, more probably than any other team sport that I can think of on individual performance as well. So you have that combination of the individual performance and the team effort. Because when you're a batsman, and believe me, I've done it as a youngster out uh, at, your, at the crease, it's a very lonely place to be um, and you're really you're, you're carrying the can for your team and the bowler as well is somebody who's under a lot of pressure to deliver uh, to deliver the ball and deliver deliver wickets and keep down the run total of the opposition team and then of course the, the fielders and whatever are working together so it's that kind of curious combination which makes it I think uh, uniquely um, uh, interesting uh, for, uh, for spectators and I think for people who play it unlike me people who play it well uh, I think uh, get a great deal of satisfaction out of it yeah, Well you still have the love for cricket but, but your own sporting interest you kind of took to the water didn't you Yes, I, the thing I do now to escape uh, uh, you know, the cares of the world is I take, uh, take to the water on sailing boats. Not in a terribly competitive way, more in a, in a relaxed, uh, uh, see-how-it-goes uh, kind of uh, approach. And uh, I like if I can get away for a few days to sail boats in wherever that might be available and wherever there's a bit of water and a, and a bit of wind. And uh, I found that a great way to, if you like, uh, completely detach myself from the things that occupy us most of the time uh, because it physically can be quite demanding and mentally it can be very absorbing as well and of course in the old days you were cut off as well from everything that was going on in the world that's not the case unfortunately now because of course we all have mobile phones but you can always turn them off and just leave them in, in a locker somewhere and not look at them uh, so that's something that I do and I've only I only sort of came to it later in life so I was in my I think in my mid-30s or whatever but my father-in-law had sailed and he's, he encouraged me uh, and with his encouragement uh, I got involved in it and I, I, I've uh, you know I've had a lot of made great friends and had a lot of adventures and a few hairy moments uh, and certainly some wonderful memories as well. Yeah, what kind of hairy moments? <laughs> well, usually it's connected with the weather or rocks <laughs> or big waves or that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, uh, the, the, uh, I like to sail with people who are uh, have, a, have a little bit of fear and apprehension because I think that mm. means that you have some respect uh, for Mother Nature and the conditions that you can uh, encounter. Um, I always, I'm always a little anxious if I find myself with somebody, particularly in charge of the boat who's overconfident <laughs> uh, and so when I occasionally take charge myself or I do a little bit of skippering uh, I'm uh, I'm a bag of nerves really to be quite honest yeah. with you and uh, I sleep badly and I remain very uh, apprehensive until I get everybody safely into into harbour that night and I think that's probably maybe uh, that uh, fo- uh, you know reflection of the fact that I came to it a bit later in life but I still yeah. get a great deal of joy out of it. And how far, how far would you go? I mean well, I mean, I've done trips. Uh, I've done trips around Ireland. Uh, I've been all the way around Ireland non-stop. Uh, there's a race around Ireland race which I've which I've done, and that's about 700 miles without stopping. Uh, you're never very far offshore, or uh, so you can usually see a bit of land. Um, I've sailed backwards and forwards to France. I did a trip a couple of years ago back from um, from the Baltic. Uh, through the Kiel Canal over the top of, of the Netherlands and down into the English Channel. Oh. So that was uh, three or four days. And so it's uh, one of the, the joys is those kind of trips where you um, where you, you, you are at sea maybe for a number of days. So you have a watch system. So night and day kind of merge into one because you do three or four hours on, three or four hours off, and you get into that very uh, particular rhythm. Um, and that's... that's uh, 
that's that's that really is complete uh, separation from uh, from normal life it takes a, a day or so to kind of get into it um but when you do um i'm always uh, sad when it's over you know when you arrive in harbor yeah. i think oh i'd love i'd love to go on for a, a, little, a little bit longer you know coming up the irish sea at night with just the stars to guide you it's really magical and as a curiosity brian is there, is there one part of ireland that you think looks more beautiful than the rest from the sea <laughs> Well, I suppose the great thing about the Irish coast, and you realise this then when you sail elsewhere in Europe, anyway, I haven't, I haven't sailed anywhere else in, around the world, is that the Irish coast is, is really, almost the whole way around is very spectacular because we have, you remember from your geography classes, they used to say Ireland was the shape of a saucer. So it's got a high at the side with all the mountains around the rim and then the sort of low bit in the middle, of course, where we have the Shannon and yeah. the floods and so on. Um, and so most of the Irish coast is, is really very spectacular. The Baltic, for example, where I was a couple of years ago, it's very, very flat. There's very little to see when you come across, obviously, the Dutch coast Again, it's very flat. Even the south coast of England isn't isn't that impressive. The white cliffs of Dover aren't quite as white as they make them out to be sometimes. Um, and you don't have those tremendous, like you have in Scotland as well, where the where the mountain ranges come right down to the sea and sweep down mm. uh, into the ocean. And we have that almost around our whole coast, barring I think a little stretch north of Dublin. Um, if you think about it, it's it's we're rimmed by uh, wonderful wonderful scenery, which is really quite unusual in in, in Europe. And I think it's why so many uh, visitors come to this country, the French or the Germans, Italians, they come here and they are just captivated, um, particularly by our coastal scenery, that spectacular combination of, of mountain uh, and of uh, coastline and of sea. Wonderful, wonderful. Now, your second musical choice brings us to Belfast and, and your career in journalism took you to Belfast. Were you always going to be a journalist? It was, it was an ambition of mine really right through my school days. Um, and when I was in transition year in, in school, they, there was a part of the programme which had some uh, uh, journalistic uh, ex- aspects to it and we made a radio programme and so on. And I, I kind of got bitten by the journalism bug then. So really from about my mid-teens, yeah, um, I, was, I had my eye on this as a, as a career um, possibility, yeah. So when you, yeah, when you went to Belfast, then you were still a young man, and and Belfast was a turbulent place. I went there in 1983, so I was, I think, 22, um, and I suppose it was my first proper job in journalism. I'd worked in pirate radio in Dublin, um, but I suppose this was my first, if you like, uh, experience of legitimate uh, legal broadcasting. <laughs> And um, and uh, I I I, uh, I went to work for BBC Radio Ulster, so it's the local BBC station ba- based in uh, in Belfast, and um, I worked at one more or less what I'm doing now as a reporter and presenter on on radio radio current affairs programs, and it was great training ground. It was great experience. At the time when I was there, Belfast was still. Um, uh, you know, struggling really with the the consequences of the of the troubles and of the violence. Uh, there was a lot of political movement. So there was the Anglo-Irish Agreement occurred at that time. Gareth Fitzgerald and Maggie Thatcher, people might recall, uh, signed this deal, which probably laid the foundation ultimately for the Good Friday Agreement and the settlement we have today. Um, but at the time, it didn't necessarily appear that way. Um, but it did mean there was some political movement. So there was that happening. But it was still there was still a lot of security. You were you were checked going into the main central city area. There were there were uh, uh, checkpoints and you went through these uh, you know they inspected your bags and so on and that kind of thing and the same going in out of shops and there was you know the, at night there were very few restaurants or bars or anywhere to go so um, it, it was a strange kind of environment from that point of view certainly. And were you nervous going up there as a young Dubliner who had led we, we had a very <laughs> cosseted life in Dublin? 
Yeah, no, I didn't really. I suppose I was a reporter going up to, to, to work and report on what was a, a big story. I mean, it was an international, it still is in many ways, a story of, of international significance. So I was, I was excited from that point of view. Um, and I... I my my parents, particularly my mother, particularly had a, had a lot of contacts in, in in Northern Ireland. Her family were from well, her mother was from Tyrone, her father was from Monaghan, and she had connections. She'd always kept those connections, and uh, um, I think because of that, she she and they were a lot, a, a lot less anxious than other parents might have been at the time uh, to see their 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 twenty something youngster mm-hmm. head off. Um, so I it it wasn't it, it was I thought it was a wonderful adventure. I, I got on the Belfast train on a Sunday night and uh, off I went with my suitcase and I thought this is fantastic yeah I've got a I've got a job and I got a place to stay and uh, uh, you know what's wrong with that yeah. and did you did you stay in Belfast on your days off or did you come home had your social life up there I did you know I stayed there and I mean I working in the BBC there was a uh, there was a very good sort of social atmosphere people tended to socialize together the people you worked with tended to be with people we socialised with so I made very good friends and many of whom are st- still good friends of mine to this day uh, during that time there um, so but it was a kind of a fairly narrow I suppose uh, um, you know social circle if you like um, and uh, you know other journalists as well working in other media journalists we, we tended to sort of socialise a lot uh, together and I suppose maybe that's not unusual in any profession but in that kind of atmosphere there was a slightly sort of war zone atmosphere about it sometimes you know that sense of you know we're, we're kind of you know sort of closing the door now on this for the moment and we won't talk about it for a while and we'll uh, talk about other things but there was a great I mean there was a good cultural life good sporting life I mean uh, um, uh, Barry McGuigan was uh, doing great things in the ring at the time and I remember seeing him in the in the Ulster Hall and people like that gave a great sense of uh, encouragement and hope um, and uh, I think gave a great lift particularly he did and the, 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 the to cue my next piece of music if you like is the other person uh, in that regard was Van Morrison um, people were very proud that you know Belfast boy uh, made good uh, and when I first went to live in Belfast I got a bed sit uh, in a big old house on a street called Cypress Park in East Belfast and so what I'd like to hear in uh, if you like recognition of that and to bring back those wonderful memories is Van Morrison's Cypress Avenue. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. And Brian I suppose that training you you got in in Belfast stood to you uh, when you became a senior Journalists in Dublin. I mean, the good, the Good Friday Agreement, etc. All of that. You were central. To yeah, all of I was. That. I was back over the years, uh, uh, back uh, to cover that and other other stories in the, in the north. Uh, and I was there at the, the the day they did the, the agreement, the Good Friday Agreement, uh, in 1998. And there was certainly a high point in my journalistic career to have been there to have witnessed that. Um, and you know, to have seen, if you like, the triumph of politics. Politicians are often much maligned, and sometimes with good reason. Um, but politicians and politics often can deliver. Uh, extraordinary uh, breakthroughs, um, and that was definitely one of them. And that was politi- that was politicians, really, you know, doing the hard graft to work out a political deal, um, and uh, to do it to do it successfully. So it was great to be there for that occasion. And um, you know, I've been I've been back from I've been back from time to time since. And I mean, there were standout characters too, weren't they? I mean, I suppose by the nature of what was going on, but on on both sides of the divide, the personalities were very strong. They were. I mean, they were. Uh, and I suppose maybe the, the nature of the political uh, conflict generated that kind of 
um, that kind of energy and dynamism and uh, and strength of character. So you know people like uh, like John Hume, um, but like Seamus Mallon. Uh, on the uh, on the nationalist side, if you like, Jerry Adams, uh, Ian Paisley, eventually when he was brought in, David Trimble, who I often think isn't given anything like the credit he should be for the heavy lifting he did on the on the unionist side. Uh, these were these were people who were, but they were also very skilled political operators, um, and I think that that was really what they brought to uh, the whole process: that uh, ability to see that politics is about the art of the possible, what can be achieved here peacefully. And without violence. Yeah, and when you mentioned David Trimble, do you feel he gave so much and, and took so much stick for it and that that wasn't fully appreciated? Or what are you referring to? Uh, yeah, well, I, th- I think uh, I th- what I'm referring to is the fact I think he was the one who, on the unionist side who got in and got stuck in and uh, did, the, did the deal um, and managed to hammer out an agreement and obviously was outflanked by the DUP and by Ian Paisley, who eventually came on board when... Uh, you know, when the deal was revised um, subsequently uh, to to, uh, to their satisfaction. Um, and I suppose, you know, that was part of the political process that was underway. Um, and, uh, you know, I just, I just think that someone like Trimble deserves perhaps more credit than he gets. He's uh, he sometimes criticised maybe for not selling the deal hard enough at the time. Uh, and I think he faced enormous challenges and enormous difficulties. Um, and uh, I think he made a very significant contribution. Yeah. Tell me, Brian, when you're pr- fronting... A huge operation like the main news bulletin and everyone's glued in. I'd imagine it's difficult to have emotion. I mean, you're trying to conceal emotion, obviously. Did that? Did you ever have an issue with that? No, and and I think the reason is that if you're fronting particularly, and it's almost the bigger the story, the more this is the case. Um, when you're fronting particularly a big story, you're you know as as a, as a reporter, a professional, as a presenter, certainly my um, motivation or my uh, desire is to do the job as well as I can. Uh, you know, so to get the facts right, to keep clear-headed about it. So you're really focused on on the job in hand rather than on the the emotional impact. And so it's often, I find it's often after the event. So I can remember the Good Friday Agreement, which was a, a very powerful mm. moment in our history. It was really only days afterwards that the, 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 the real significance of it began to sink in. Just for me as an Irish citizen, what this would mean for from, from me, for my, for my family, for my children growing up in, uh, in this uh, changed uh, Ireland and how much better it would be, hopefully, than the Ireland that we'd grown up in where the terrible reports from Belfast every night on the on the news. So that kind of personal emotional impact is something that comes, but it's usually, in my case anyway, I find it's delayed until until after the job has been completed. Sure. By the nature of news too, I suppose, Brian, people remember bad news stands out more than good news. Oh, well, of course. But I mean, we're like that in normal life, aren't we? We kind of share, did you hear such and such a thing happened? And, uh, you know, good news often uh, struggles to be, to be heard. So I suppose that's why something like the Good Friday Agreement, which was a good news story, uh, is, is one that stands out for me. And, and actually, it is more those that tend to stand out. The, the uh, I mean, if I come a bit more recently, the uh, Queen Elizabeth's visit, visit here back when, was it 2011, yeah. um, was an extraordinary story, a good news story, um, and a moment where we really turned the page in historical relations between uh, Britain and Ireland for the better, one hopes. Um, so very often for me, it's the, of course, on the other hand, you know, 9-11 and moments like that um, are also standout moments, uh, which, you know, not couldn't be for, you know, by any stretch of the imagination be described as good news stories. So I suppose it's, for those of us who are involved in news and journalism, it's important to try and maintain a mix, if you like. Yeah. Um, and uh, to refer, because that's, that's life. Life is a mix of the, of the good and the bad, yeah. Sure. At the time of nine eleven, what were you 
what pro news program were you working on? I was on the six o'clock news at the time, so uh, six o'clock TV news, and I was in town. I was meeting somebody. I was actually due to go um, and interview a man called Richard Haas, who had an American uh, who had been just appointed as um, uh, George W. Bush's envoy to Ireland and yeah. he was meeting Bertie Ahern who was Taoiseach at the time in government buildings and we'd arranged to do an interview so I was making my way around to government buildings to do an, a little to record an interview with him uh, and the news news of the planes striking the Twin Towers broke uh, there was a brief press conference at the steps of government buildings I remember uh, from Richard Haas and, and Bertie Ahern and I remember then heading straight back to RT and we were on air I think the station was already on air and then I went into studio and we were on from about three o'clock in the afternoon until I think ten o'clock that night uh, then I, I I hand it over. Even now, looking back on it, and you just talking about it, it makes us all remember it. It was so shocking, wasn't it? And, and unreal yes. almost. And so sudden and so unexpected. Um, although I think we discovered afterwards that there had been, you know, there, there, was, there were signs there and there was intelligence and there had been previous attacks. Um, but I think for most of us, it just came, it came out of the blue. Um, and it was, it was the scale of the destruction, uh, the hu loss of human life, first and foremost, 3,000 dead, I think, was the final figure or, or of that order. Yeah. Um, but, but also the, 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 the destruction of these two symbols, if you like, of, uh, uh, of democracy and capitalism and, and uh, you know, so, uh, on, the, on the skyline of Manhattan, which so many people in Ireland are so familiar with. So it, it, was, it was terribly shocking. And of course, it was just the first act in a, in a series of events then, which, mm. uh, which are still being played out. Um, one, one element of it, I suppose, Brian, that has changed since you began in journalism was people with videos and people on the street and it emerged over several days afterwards different angles of vision of yeah. the planes coming in etc but actually there's still fairly there's still not that much visual material of the, of the of the event because this is the era before mobile uh, you know smartphones mm -hmm. so uh, well, at least or at least widely available smartphones um so it was still a story that was covered you know by traditional news media um, um, with not a lot of that kind of input, it would be if it happened today. God forbid, it would, it would mm. be it would be completely different. I mean, we'd be watching it. Everybody would every phone and the uh, you know the, to hand would be would be pointed skyward. Um, so that and that that as an aspect of journalism has, is obviously the hu the biggest change in the last uh, two decades that certainly I've seen um, uh, is the advance of social media for for sure. You switched to Morning Ireland after years on, as the main uh, TV news presenter. That was a hell of a change in terms of the hours you're getting <laughs> up at. <laughs> it certainly was, yeah. Um, uh, it, uh, it certainly was, but it was a change that was really overdue. I had been presenting the news bulletins between the six one and the nine for uh, about 20 25 years something like that yeah. i'd sort of lost track um so really it wasn't before time that i did something different so this opportunity came along and i was delighted uh, and uh, um aside from the fact that the alarm goes off at half four in the morning <laughs> i no regrets you no can regrets never get used to the alarm going off at half four I, in the morning i don't think so <laughs> maybe maybe i did i was i presented uh, uh, my last job in the bbc in, in belfast was presenting their breakfast program and uh, it and I absolutely hated it, and it was the reason really because one of the reasons the why I left because of the hours. <laughs> and I think the problem was that I was still in my twenties, and I think it's very difficult to discipline yourself at that yeah. age. You know, I wanted to be out at night, yeah. meeting my pals and stuff. So yeah. uh, I'm a bit older and wiser. Well, I don't know about wiser, but older and more sedate <laughs> now. So <laughs> it's not so much a sacrifice uh, to yeah. stay in. Yeah. <laughs> your 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 final musical choice brings us to Inish Boffin. Yes, Inishboffin Island uh, in County Galway, which I have been visiting on and off for, 
It's actually the best part of um, 40 years now, I, I think it must be. Um, and uh, my connection with Inishbofin is that my wife's family have a holiday home there. Her, her parents, my, my late parents-in-law, bought a house, a, a bit of a wreck, I think, at the time in the late 1970s, but just situated at the east end of the island on a, on a, on a little uh, beach, looking back towards Connemara. Um, and if you glance down to your left, you'll see Crowpatrick and the chapel in, glinting in the sunlight uh, as the sun goes down. So it's an absolutely uh, wonderful place. But, but more than the wonderful scenery, it's, uh, it's uh, a wonderful community of people. Um, and it's always a great pleasure to, to revisit Ishbafen and to you know, reacquaint myself with old friends and uh, to spend a little time walking and an occasional libation in Day's Bar down by the harbour. Uh, and so what I thought I'd like you to hear and share with your listeners is uh, Desi O'Halloran, who's uh, uh, passed away sadly just uh, last uh, September, a singer and a fiddle player from Inishbofin. And uh, he had a big hit um, some decade or more ago now with Sharon Shannon. He appeared on a Sharon Shannon album singing what was one of his signature tunes. You used to hear him singing it in the bar in days. Uh, Say You Love Me. Okay, and, and just to finish on Inishbofin, mm-hmm. I sense you're an urban man, but you have a huge love for rural Ireland. Well, I suppose the West of Ireland particularly speaks to something very deep in the Irish psyche, isn't it? Um, And, you know, it's back to what we were talking about, the landscape, uh, the mountains and the sea. Um, And it's just uh, for so many people from, you know, this side of the country, and I've grown up and spent all my life uh, uh, here in in Dublin uh, or Belfast, um, it's uh, it's a place of great uh, repose and uh, revival and renewal. And I suppose for a lot of people at the moment we're not able to visit the parts of the country that mean a lot to us uh, and uh, that's very important that we stick with those uh, restrictions if you like and I know that the communities in right up and down the west coast uh, will be delighted to welcome people back when all this is over um, and I think for very many of us uh, we'll be heading we'll be heading west or heading to some of our favorite uh, places of escape and um, revival and nourishment uh, once this dreadful pandemic has run its course and we can consign it to the past. Indeed. Well, Brian Dobson, thank you very much for sharing your musical memories with us. It was really enjoyable. Be safe. Thank you. Thanks, Des. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1.